You may be seated. Good morning. My name is Sam. And before we get going into Matthew, I wanted to make just a quick uh, just update on um, what's happening downstairs. So <clears throat> there, I think there's a letter that I posted on the city that's been printed and put in your bulletin to give those who are uh, newer or, or never get on the city. Tisk, tisk. Um, the news of what's going on. So we have like announcements, it seems like, every week. So first announcement, obviously, is that we are uh, modifying the name of the church, and there's several reasons for that, and they're all good reasons, but it's a distinguished. We're part of actually three different networks, if you didn't know that. One is um, our own network, which is the Road Church Network, and that is a family of churches, uh, brothers, sisters, however you want to describe it. Probably they're all brides, so sisters. And Marysville is, is a, a sister church to us. We share the same family. We share the same last name at this point, but you don't name all your kids the same first name, and so that's why we're distinguishing. We're also part of this network called Three Strand, and Three Strand is a a regional network with churches that we planted, including Jim up at Communion, um, but other churches in Bellingham and in uh, Briar and in Linwood, Um, and so that's a regional accountability network to make sure that we have accountability. It's very uh, specific, very relational. We meet every week, and we cooperate and contribute together. partly to do stuff like helping Jim, uh, is getting a, a new church up there, so it's really exciting. And then there's Acts 29, and Acts 29 is really just an associative network with um, really national connections uh, that we have with different people, and um, we participate uh, occasionally with them in various things. So we have this little network called Road Church, we're now going to be Restoration Road Church, and so uh, we are still at this point... Um, don't exist legally, restoration, so uh, Damascus Road is still the legal name that will be changed here um, soon, and I'll let you know what that is, so don't need to change anything in terms of how you write checks or whatever. Um, but downstairs space has become available to us, and we're super excited, so uh, the elders and the leaders, uh, that being the deacons and road group leaders have met, and we've decided to move forward with the space, um, and it's going to empower us to do a lot of different things, and the landlord has been very gracious with us, and I've kind of laid it out, but we're a lot of opportunities to support this move and to support different things, and partially is, is giving, trying to raise some money so that we can make sure that we are being wise and, and we're secure in, in, in what we're doing. Um, but there's other ways as well uh, to contribute. If you're like, you know, I can't write a check tomorrow, but we've got different people in the church organizing different things. We have a yard sale coming up in a, in a few weeks. And that's just, a, honestly, someone in the church had an idea and they started to move and say, hey, you know what, let's start raising money this way. Uh, there's people that contribute every week in different ways. I was um, watching, just as I was studying, different people coming in, cleaning the church, different people coming in, organizing stuff, building stuff. And so you have something to contribute. That's why God has you here. You're part of the body, and we're just trying to figure out what parts you are. And so we recognize that if you're a hand or you're a leg or you're a foot or whatever, no one's a head. That's Jesus, but the rest of us, even me, I'm just like a shoulder blade or something. I don't even know what I am, but I'm no more important than you, and you have a part to play. And if your part's not working, then we're not working. The body isn't functioning the way God designed it to. And we might be able to limp around without you for a while, but we're going to look awkward and, and, and not be as productive. So you have a role to play, some part to play, and it doesn't have to be leading a Bible study. It doesn't have to be writing a big check. It might be something else or any of those things. So we're just asking you to contribute to be part of this, to be part of a family, and, and, and take a sense of ownership in this place and on downstairs and get creative with it. We are not, I am not a micromanager. Like, we're more like, dude, what are you? Who are you? 
How has God made you? Yeah, let's run with that. Because the shapes of bodies look different, right? They all look unique. God builds them. We go, wow, that's kind of awkward, but that's us. So like, we can be awkward and, and weird. and We don't have all the parts, but we have all the parts we need. And you're a piece of that. So I would pray that you would uh, think about contributing. Pray about how that would look. And then act on it. Act on it. So that's the basic news. Uh, Hopefully, uh, we'll have that space coming up within the next week or so, and we'll have it free for a while, actually, just because of the, the way the landlord's helping us out. So a lot of opportunities to do different things, uh, and you will see more news about that. But let's get into God's Word. Um, and we are in Matthew, going straight through books of the Bible, in this case, Matthew, and we are in chapter 9. And Matthew is uh, one of four Gospels. Matthew has his own portrayal, giving us a picture of Jesus It's very unique. Um, to him, but the story is the same. It's just told from a different perspective, sometimes with a different purpose. And Matthew um, is intending to write to Jews in particular, and he is portraying Jesus as the one true king, the king they've been waiting for, the one king that is ruling the one kingdom of God. And so all the pieces that we've seen thus far has been an effort to kind of prove that, right? In beginning of Matthew, we had the genealogy. You go, that's really boring. But the genealogy proved that his line was kingly. That he went back to have the pedigree of the king. We had uh, his baptism, right? Revealed that he was anointed as the king by God the Father. And the Holy Spirit came down and, and filled him and empowered him. And his temptation revealed that he had the strength of the king. right? He had the purity of the king. He wasn't going to fall. He did the very thing Adam was supposed to do in, in fighting against and resisting temptation. His teaching as he went to the Sermon on the Mount revealed he had the wisdom of the king. And his miracles began to reveal that he had the authority of the king. And so, with the first coming of the king, because the king will return, but the first coming of the king, we see glimpses of what it looks like for a creation that's in rebellion, that is broken, to be restored under the rule of the king. What it looks like. It looks like healed people. looks like freed people. It looks like wisdom that is very contrary to the wisdom of the world. Now, everyone, whether they believe in Jesus or not, is under Jesus' kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom. Under His rule, I should say. But not everyone enters the kingdom and believes in the kingdom. No one seeks, the Bible says. No one finds themselves. No one chooses to enter the kingdom on their own. I think I'm going to go into Jesus' kingdom today. Okay. The declaration of Jesus' rule is declared globally, but the invitation is always given personally. Now, like Matthew, which we see today, and we've seen it a couple times, Jesus calls men to follow Him. He goes and finds them. He goes and seeks them. And then He calls them. And when He calls them to follow, this is not like our culture, right? Where we have friends and we have fans on this Facebook stuff. We're like, hey, I'm going to follow this person and occasionally, quote, like what they say. When we're following Jesus, we are reorienting our lives according to every word Jesus has said. It's not an occasional like. It's not an occasional comment. It's not a... I like some of that. It's all of what Jesus said governing our lives. And so, no pastor, no evangelist, no Christian 
Only Jesus has the power to draw men to Himself. Only Jesus can call someone to say, follow me. And if Jesus does not call someone to follow them, they will not follow Him. But when Jesus does call someone, when that conversion actually does occur in somebody, and you may have experienced this, you may have seen this, even if you felt like you were looking for Jesus, even if it felt like I was doing all these things and seeking Him, you realize that you were the one who was found by Jesus. That when all is said and done, He was the one that said, no, you're mine. And grabbed you by the back of the collar, turned you around, and changed your life. So this is what happens to Matthew. Matthew's not looking for Jesus. Matthew's not trying to find Him. He's probably heard about Him. But it says, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and He said to him, follow me. I'm always wondering what that's like. If He's just like walking by, follow me. Right? Or if He like walks up to Him, follow me. Right? What does He do? Like, who knows? Matthew's not looking for Him is the point. What does He do? He rises and He follows Him. Doesn't think about it. Doesn't, doesn't measure like, I don't know, I'm giving up a lot. But He walks away from an entire life an entire way of living that was very lucrative. Although it made him hated by a lot of the world, it was lucrative, it was comfortable, it was predictable. So Matthew here, think about it, he's recording his own calling. right? He's recording the day that he started to follow Jesus. And his perspective on it is, is pretty interesting. If you look in the same descriptions that Mark and Luke write, right? because Mark and Luke both record the calling of Matthew as well. Mark says that Jesus saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. That's what he names him. doesn't use the name Matthew. Luke says that Jesus saw a tax collector named Levi. But what does Matthew say? Jesus saw a man called Matthew. He doesn't even say that he was a tax collector, though he's sitting in a tax booth. A man called Matthew. Now, it's really important that you remember that Matthew is like, he's a tax collector, right? So he's a numbers guy, organized guy, system guy. So when he's writing, he has one of the most organized Gospels. That's why it was used as like a teaching manual. So like it is, he plans out everything. And so when you study the Bible, it's important for you to kind of step back. And yes, you want to be in the story, but like where is this falling in the story? And what does that communicate about what Matthew's trying to communicate? So think about this. His conversion to Jesus, his call, takes place in the middle of a series of miracles that have nothing to do with this call. Okay? So if you go back several chapters, you'll see that the story began as we saw the authority and the power of the king coming out with the healing of a leper, the healing of a centurion servant. You have the calming of a storm. You have the healing of a demon-possessed man. You have the restoring of a paralytic. And then you have Matthew's call. And after Matthew's call, what do you have? You have a girl raised from the dead. We'll see that. You have a guy who is blind and then can see. You have someone who cannot speak. He was mute. And then they are freed to speak. So in the middle of all of that, you have Matthew's call. So 
What are we to think about that? From Matthew's perspective, his conversion is as big of a miracle as any of those things. That his conversion to following Jesus is on the same level as a paralytic walking, or a blind man seeing, or a girl being raised from the dead. He puts his call in the middle of all of those miracles because honestly, when someone follows Jesus, it is a miracle. Dare I say it's a miracle when anyone follows Jesus. And you see it happen, and it's amazing. People who are walking one way, they were living their life devoted to their sin, living life devoted to themselves, living life excited about the next pleasure or avoiding God and whatever they were doing, and then one day, bam! Jesus, I love Him, I'm following Him, here we go. It's a miracle any time, I think, someone responds to the call of Jesus. And we're not called just a reformed life, like just better behavior. What we see in Matthew and others is that Jesus actually calls you to a transformed life. He, he changes you from seeing life, from believing certain things about life, from even living it, into an entirely different way. You turn to a completely different way. And so that's what we're going to talk about. I think Jesus, in this section, it shows us, He calls us to a couple things. He calls us from good to bad, which sounds weird, but go with me. He calls us from fear to love, and calls us from old to new. So we'll start with calling from good to bad. And this is an awesome point. It's rad. Ready? Good. I know you're excited. So, calls us from good into bad, which sounds counterintuitive, but let's stick with me. So, earlier, and I preached this section on Matthew a couple times, and we always looked at what Matthew was doing, and that Matthew was changed. But I want to look at Jesus now, what he says and what he does. So after Jesus calls him, they immediately go to Matthew's house, who's wealthy, throws a big party. In fact, in Luke, I believe it says, a huge, great feast. So Matthew's show, uh, doing a great feast in his house, and he invites all of, it says, a large company in the Gospel of Luke of tax collectors and friends. So he's throwing a big party. And so, like a couple wedding crashers, a few Pharisees show up, and they're in attendance, right? And they're like, oh, party, huh? Let's figure this out. And like, they're kind of bugged, but... They're, it's interesting that they're bugged about the tax collectors, but they go out and hang out to get the cake, I guess, at the party. So they're there watching Jesus enjoy Himself, having fellowship with sinful men, in their words. Men that they had intentionally separated themselves from. Men, they're like, I am not like them, right? They kept in His arms distance to see Jesus like, you know, high-fiving them and, and passing the chicken legs or whatever they're eating, right? And they are enjoying fellowship. And these guys are bothered. And to understand the disposition of Pharisees towards these guys, it's helpful to listen to the parable that Jesus describes in Luke 18. In Luke 18, He says this, Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. So this is the attitude of a Pharisee towards these men. Oh God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Right? So he looks at the, quote, sinful people who are not going to the Bible studies, not giving to the church, not 
fasting and he goes, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like those slime balls. Okay? So when they go in and see Jesus, who's been healing all these things, and they're like, what are you hanging around with these slime balls for? You're supposed to be super spiritual like us. And Jesus has a response to their question, but here's the question they ask. They go, why, why is Jesus hanging out with sinners? Why is He hanging out with these sinners? And so their question reveals a lot about their perspective. And dare I say, it's a perspective that many of us hold. They basically reveal that they see the world according to kind of two categories of people, right? you got the good people and the bad people. you got the righteous and the unrighteous. And can you guess what team they think they're on? Can you guess what team we always think we're on, right? It's funny, we, we just bash on the Pharisees and we are very similar to them many times. Because we're not Jesus in the story, let's remember that. So in this case, these people have created two categories in their minds. There are bad people who do bad things and there are good people who do not so bad things. They might do bad things, but they're not as bad as the bad people doing the bad things. And these categories are really obvious for the big stuff, right? The criminals, the dictators, you know, people like that. I, well, those are clearly bad. Like the adulterers and the abusers and the extortioners. Yeah, those are the bad people. I'm not in that category. But it's more likely that those categories exist for us. We have some dividing line in our life that is not just that. That's our way of breaking the world into two kinds of people, those that we would deem worthy and those unworthy. Now, really what it is, it's an effort to feel better about our own sin. It's an effort for us to ignore our own sin. It's a way for us to place ourselves in a position of authority or superiority, whether that be moral, which that happens, political, which that happens, or social. Right? You all have your dividing lines. Well, at least I'm not this political persuasion because these guys are nut jobs, right? And so you kind of look down on them. Social groups, like, um, there's tons. LGBT, right? Well, at least I'm not that. I'm not screwed up like that. We make those categories in our mind. And we feel good about it. We feel okay about it. The moral ones are, are timeless. Well, it can be really simple like, oh, did, that guy uses a lot of profanity. Did you hear that? That guy drinks. And so, we create our own categories in our mind, really arbitrary divisions that we are trying to use to justify ourselves and to basically show by comparison, I'm a righteous person. So this is what these Pharisees are doing. Now, here's the flat-out truth. Ready? Take this one with you. Most of us believe that we are good. And we're wrong. Okay? Go and be blessed. Okay? Most of us believe we're good and we're flat-out wrong. Of course, we don't mean by good like, well, I'm not perfect. I mean, I commit little sins. Just not the big ones. Of course, I'm sure you could give us the big ones in the list of those. I mean, I don't, I don't commit murder. I'm not a murderer, 
right? I'm at least in a little better category than that. I don't commit adultery. I don't extort people for money. Like, if you've been with us through Matthew, then do you remember the Sermon on the Mount? Right? If not, you should go listen to the podcast because what you'll hear is that the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus to go like, here's righteousness, like way up here, and here's like the most righteous possible guys, and you've got to be better than them. Basically to say the standard is so impossibly high, and if, and if you lust after someone, you're an adulterer. If you hate somebody, you're a murderer. You're like, oh, that's pretty inclusive of everybody. If you view yourself as a good person, and I mean not like say it out loud, but really think it quietly, Jesus has nothing for you. Nothing. He says it Himself. He's like, I didn't come to call the righteous. Jesus says He only came for the sick. Jesus only calls sinners. He did not come to call the righteous because if you're righteous, you don't need Him. You don't need Him. When Jesus calls you, when Jesus calls an individual, here's what He does and here's what He did with Matthew. He opens your eyes to see that there's actually only one category. It's called bad. And we're all in it. There's no levels of badness you're bad. We're bad. We're all bad. But that's good. Because Jesus came for bad people. Right? If you say you're good, you're missing Jesus. You don't think you need Him. Men like Matthew recognize that if Jesus is on mission to save bad people, I only have two options. Right? Either I become bad, which seems kind of weird, or I realize that I'm just really not that good. You come to this place of like, I actually am broken. I actually am rebellious. The second part of that parable about the prayer of the Pharisee is the prayer of a tax collector that the Pharisee is talking about. And the attitude that I wonder if Matthew maybe shared at one point, and maybe this is why Jesus told this parable, I don't know. That's totally conjecture. But in Luke 18, the end of that parable I began to read says, but the tax collector, who the Pharisee was so thankful he was not like, said this, standing far off, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The first thing Jesus does to us is call us from good to bad. He opens our eyes to see who we really are. But the second thing He does is He calls us into fear, into love, right? Because if I'm bad, uh, that's something to be feared. Because Jesus also says that bad people are judged. And so when someone's told they're bad, there's only three responses. I should say there's three common responses because there's actually a right one and this is not any of them, right? One, they celebrate it. I'm bad! That's right! Live it up! I'm going to party my friends in hell! That's awesome, right? Stupid. But people say it. Think it's funny. Ha, ha, ha. Right? They celebrate it. Romans 1 even says that. It said God gave them over their sin and they, 
they celebrated and they basically like approved those who were doing it with them. They could celebrate it. Some try to deny it. No, 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 I'm not bad. I'm pretty good. Let me prove it to you. And then those are the people who try to find a way to avoid it. The Pharisees chose option three, right? Deny it. Didn't quite ignore it. They actually admitted it, but they thought they could actually work their way out of it. So they added a bunch of new rules to God's law. Tons of them. There was hundreds of them, even just to one law, like obey the Sabbath. There was hundreds added to it. They made additional laws to describe what it actually meant to not work. They got to the place where you couldn't leave a certain distance away from your home, and then they make a new rule that says, well, if you take a pile of dirt and you put a little like sack attached to your belt and you walk away, you're still by your house, so that counts. You're all right. Like, are you kidding me? So just countless layers upon layers upon layers of rules that God never gave, that God didn't provide, that God never instructed to have. And they believed that that was the solution for them to fix their badness. And what's it called? Religion. Religion isn't always used in a negative connotation, but I'm going to use it today. and It's used positively very few times in the New Testament. They made a religion up. They made a bunch of rules. See, God didn't invent religion. Men did as an effort to deal with their badness and earn their salvation. See, Christianity is not a religion. It's something entirely different. And while there are some differences in some of the truth claims of all the world religions, no matter what you talk about, they're all basically the same. In all the religions, apart from Christianity, are all basically ways of earning your own salvation so God doesn't kill you or you get to enjoy whatever heaven is. All of them. They're a works-based system. If I do these things, if I don't do these things, then I will have karma or I'll reach this level or whatever. So in order for you to be right with God in all other religions, you have to do something. Or not do something. Otherwise, uh, you won't be reconciled with God. So Jesus tells these kind of quiz champion Pharisees, right? Bible quiz guys know every verse in the Bible. He basically says, uh, you need to go read your Bible. That's what he tells you. Like, you guys, go read your Bible. You missed the point. That's his implication. Like, you, you got all this stuff memorized. You added a few things, but you missed the big idea. And so he quotes the Old Testament and he reminds them that God is not interested in their sacrifices. He's interested in mercy. See, the Mosaic Law was full of all kinds of sacrifices. And they were sacrifices for sin. And, and these sacrifices, right, the actual killing of animals, of other kinds of food offerings and sacrifices, like but the sacrifices for sin were allowed by God. They were a gift of God to substitute for the death of the actual sinner. There was nothing magical about sheep and rams and goats. It wasn't like God looked down and went, oh, well, these ones are glowing and pretty. Let's go like, you might as well like, you know, sacrifice unicorns. It didn't matter. It was because God said this would be acceptable. And so he substituted these these sacrifices for the death of the actual sinner. And what did the sacrifices do? It protected them from the wrath of God. The wrath of God that was due because of their 
badness. But the Jews, what did they do? Well, they wrongly began to believe that these sacrifices and obedience to them could actually produce righteousness if they did it perfectly, if it did all these things. And then if they did those things, God would owe them. It's called religion. Now in Matthew 22, Jesus said the whole law was about this. So the whole law is about these two commandments, to love God and to love people. That's what it was supposed to lead you to. But interestingly enough, guys who are experts in the law, right? These Pharisees who are, have perfect obedience, Jesus uses them as examples to his disciples. like, your righteousness has got to exceed those guys. And they were like the Bible quiz champion, moral guys, going to all the Bible studies, memorized it all. Like, and they're like, you've got to get better than them. In all their memorization, in all their rule following, in all of their obedience to the law, that did not result in a love for God. What it produced, actually, was fear of being rejected by Him. That's why they didn't want to stop. And all the moralism that they were you know, attached to or pursuing or the fasting, all these things they did to show that they were spiritual, it didn't produce in them a love for people, which is what the law was supposed to do. In fact, what we see, it's separated from them. It said, ooh, you guys are sinners. You don't follow the rules that we made up especially, so you are yucky and we don't want anything with you. It didn't produce in them what the law was supposed to produce, which it was designed to produce. The law was supposed to and did lead to the cross. These guys, it led them to religion because they misunderstood. And this is no more evident than when John's disciples come up, right? In verse 14, John's disciples come up. These are John the Baptist's disciples. John's arrested probably at this point. And they identify with the Pharisees. And he says, well, why do we and the Pharisees fast, like follow this rule, rules, it's plural actually, but your disciples don't? Like, why, why don't you fast? And so these disciples, I think, are actually really asking an honest question. They want to know, like, okay, why, why aren't you guys like, acting spiritual like we do? Aren't you doing these things? And so, the truth is the law only required fasting at one day. The Day of Atonement, once a year. That's what only required it. But the Pharisees had added a bunch of other fasts. And so, the Pharisees probably fasted a couple times each week. It was just part of their rhythm. And so the disciples of John follow along suit. And so, Jesus is kind of pushing them and saying, like, really... Why are you guys sacrificing at all? Why are you guys fasting at all? You ever thought about that? What's the whole point of it? Because the point of the law, even if they just fasted once a year, the point of it was to lead you to a love for God. So Jesus asked a rhetorical question. One with an obvious answer, right? So here's how he responds to them. Why don't you guys fast? And he says, can the wedding guests mourn? as long as the bridegroom is with them. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. Now, if you were listening to like John's disciples, probably like, what did he just say? Right? This is like, just a little bit after he said, like, sins are forgiven. So now he's talking about being the bridegroom? Like, wedding? What's going on here? And so, what Jesus basically says is that, like, very 
just kind of culturally, it would be weird for them to fast. You don't fast at a wedding. In fact, I don't think it was illegal, but it was certainly culturally wrong to fast at a wedding. In fact, it was against the, quote, rules. Weddings were like a week-long feast, right? There was no fasting allowed. There was no mourning allowed. There was no work really even allowed because there was celebration. So to fast at someone's wedding would be not only weird, it would be somewhat selfish because you're distracting from what it's actually about. And so fasting, though, if you think about it, like if, even if it's just that one rule on the Day of Atonement, fasting was supposed to prepare you for this spiritual wedding ceremony that Jesus is alluding to. That place where you would get where you would love God and you are in love with God, that's where fasting was supposed to lead you to. In fact, in him saying, like, you ever ask, like, why? Why do we fast? Like, maybe fasting is part of your spiritual rhythms. Maybe it's not. A lot of people don't know why you fast. Fasting, maybe to, you know, get God to do something or whatever. Well, if we see here, what Jesus kind of implies is that fasting really is an effort to enter into the joy of the presence of the Lord. It's to be in the presence of the Lord. And with these guys, they can't fast because they're in the presence of the Lord. What would be the point? Because this is a wedding ceremony and soon a marriage is going to take place. But He's there. All the religion they love, all the ceremonial laws, all the dietary laws, all the civil laws, even the moral laws, were never an end in themselves. Hebrews 10 says that these are just shadows pointing to the cross. Pointing to a place where they would be, quote, married to our Savior. So Jesus arrives to call men out of religion out of the fear of religion, into this loving relationship. And Jesus calls Himself the bridegroom. He calls Himself that. And the idea of the bridegroom comes from the book of Hosea. And that's what He quotes from when He says, God's not interested in sacrifice but mercy. So He's quoting this Old Testament prophet, Hosea. And you may know nothing about Hosea. It's a Small, minor prophet in the Old Testament. And basically, Hosea, you should read it, it's the story of a prophet who is commanded by God to go and marry a prostitute. And it's to picture what God does in pursuing us in our dirtiness, in our rebellion, in our prostitution and love for other husbands, other gods, other idols. So this is what Jesus is using as His analogy. Basically, I came to marry bad people. I came to love you, though you are a prostitute, though you are rebellious, though you are unfaithful. Jesus didn't come to judge men for their sins. He actually came to save them from their sins by taking judgment. Now, the truth is that Jesus didn't come to give us directions on how to be good. So that's how a lot of people approach Him. 
The good news is not that we develop some kind of goodness apart from God. So He says, alright, you're, you're good enough and now you are owed heaven and I'm accepting you. Rather, it says, He develops goodness or righteousness in Christ and then gives it to you. Through faith. The Gospel is not that, well, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you've been good. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel is, it doesn't matter if you've been good as long as you trust in Christ as your Savior. Trying to be good is a very fearful endeavor in this world. It only leads you to either despair or pride because you either succeed in your, quote, goodness or you fail miserably. Jesus called us out of fear, out of religion, out of having to work and do it ourselves into love who says, I'll marry you, I'll love you, I'll protect you. Yeah, I know how screwed up you are and I'm going to clean you up and make you beautiful. So He calls us from good into bad. He calls us out of fear into love. And then He calls us old into new. And this is where I think a lot of Christians make the mistake. They're like, alright, I love Jesus. He loves me. Now let me go do Christianity. That rhymes. Cool. And it, like they make a new religion. It's just a cooler religion. Like this new neo-legalism that's like, well, it's not the Pharisee legalism, but I'm still going to have my rules even though Jesus loves me. Because the solution to our problem is actually a new relationship, we see that living out our faith is totally different than old religion. It's totally different than what we see in the Old Testament. It's totally different than what these Pharisees are saying. So to clarify that fact that the old is gone, the new has come, he gives this illustration. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment because it will tear up. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins because the skins will burst. They can't handle the new wine will crack and they'll be destroyed. So quite simply, it's not like, well, the new and old will kind of go together and we'll kind of mix it up. We'll take pieces of it. Like, no, it's gone. The new and old don't work together. Jesus came to fulfill the law of God, but He came to destroy the religion that was built by men. And there is a difference between the law of God and religion. His mission is not to create some new religion that's a better option than the older one. He doesn't give us a new formula or a new checklist or a new set of rituals to practice. He doesn't come to show us the way. Like, here's what you do. He came to be the way. To make the way. He didn't come to teach us how to have a better life. He actually came to marry you and give you one. There's a difference. Religion and Christ don't go together, not in the way that I'm trying to communicate it today. So when Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew gets up and, and leaves his old way of life, because he's Jewish, maybe he thinks he's good even though he's a tax collector, who knows? He leaves his old way of life, he doesn't suddenly become more religious. We see that here, he actually becomes more righteous. What's that mean? Well, he didn't start just like, okay, I'm going to start becoming more law-abiding, though maybe he did. I'm going to be more generous, though maybe he did. He actually started living out the true purpose of the law. He began to love God and began to love others. It's interesting that when Jesus saved him, when Jesus called him, he didn't look at his tax collector friends and go, oh, look who I've been hanging out with this whole time. He said, come close. I want to introduce you to Jesus. 
because he'd understood Jesus' love and he understood his responsibility and his desire to love others and share that. He began to act like the citizen of the kingdom that he had become. He began to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And I, when we preach the Sermon on the Mount, I tried to say it every week, the Sermon on the Mount is not a prescription of a code of ethics that you follow. It's a description of what happens to somebody's heart. Of what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. Of what we become. Of who we are in Christ. We live out the Sermon on the Mount in this new way. So let me just give you a couple different ways. This is the new way that's different than religion. Okay, The very first is a new way with God. What happens? We move from this impersonal kind of boss-employee relationship where God, I do good and, and God owes me to a father-child relationship. And a boss-employee relationship is infinitely different than a father-child relationship. Being employed is different than being adopted. One, you get a paycheck. One, you get an identity. One, you fear screwing up. The other, you know you can't. You also have a new way with lordship. You begin to see that we are saved by His grace at such an infinite cost to Him. It cost Him His Son, His life, and therefore He can ask us of anything and we serve Him joyfully. Because He always has one up on you. Right? You go, well, I could die for you, but you'll never die the death He did. The infinite God coming down and experiencing life as a man and being spit upon and abused and mocked and betrayed by men He created. And then dying for them and on the cross saying, I forgive you. You'll never have that experience, ever. It is infinitely greater, infinitely more humble. And so when He asks us of something, He says, I want you, we can serve joyfully because no, He has given everything possible. He emptied Himself of infinite riches, of infinite power, of infinite fame to come down and be with us dirty sinners. And so our worship and our service and our giving is no longer a need to appease Him. Okay, here you go, Lord, don't smite me. It's out of appreciation every time. We never serve to appease anymore. We only serve to appreciate. We never serve out of fear. We serve out of delight. Like, what else can I give you, Lord? How much more can I do for you, Lord? If you find yourself saying, how much do I have to do for you, Lord? You're still stuck in religion. You've missed the Gospel. A new way with Lordship. A couple others. A new way with self. Right? How we view ourselves. We no longer take our identity from what we, that's important, or what others think of us, but from what God thinks of us. But what does God think of us? We're pretty awesome in Christ. He sees us like He sees His Son, and He loves His Son. The Gospel produces neither an inferiority complex, because we know we're the treasure of Christ. So I don't feel less than anybody. Even if I have less money, less education, less good looks, whatever, I know I've got everything in Christ. But it also protects us from being or having a superiority complex because we know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. That everything I have and anything I have is because of grace. That's a sign of the Gospel. When you begin to see yourself not based on what other people think of you or even what you think of yourself, 
not based on your past, not based on your pedigree, not based on what you've done or haven't done, what you've achieved or haven't achieved, but what Christ says. And he said to his son at his baptism, this is my son. So think about it. This is my blank. This is Sam. This is Tim. This is Jennifer. This is whoever. And I am well pleased in them. But I haven't done anything. But Christ did everything already. And I'm well pleased in you. You know what I pray every time before I preach? Because I have such a sickness about getting like, you know, oh, I hope people like it, right? There's my world. There you go, right? A little insight into my heart. What, what do I pray? Lord, remind me that I'm approved. Lord, remind me I'm forgiven. Lord, remind me I'm loved. Lord, just remind me. Remind me, remind me. So when I come up and go, then walk away, I don't care what you think, right? We need to do that more. Because we're so apt to get our identity from someone else or even ourselves. Last couple, a new way with sin. A new way with sin, right? If In the old way, what would you do? You hid in shame. You never let anyone know about your sin. In the new way, we no longer hide our sin. We confess it. We no longer laugh at our sin. We mourn over it. We, when we sin, it's different. See, the religious, when you're religious, what do, the sins, what do they say? They say, repent, you're not living right. It's the first thing out of their mouth. Those who are irreligious will say, when you sin, well, you just have to accept that's the way you are. That's your weakness. That's just what you're going to be like forever. Maybe that's even a strength. That's your identity. That's who you are. Run with it. The Gospel says that only Jesus can save me from my problems. And only Jesus can restore true meaning in my life. My problem is not believing in the Gospel. And lastly, a new way with others. We have a new way with God, a new way with His Lordship, a new way with self, a new way with our sin, and a new way with others. We no longer see people in categories. Everyone is lost and in need of a Savior. And there are no big sinners and litter sinners. They're just sinners. So we no longer separate from the sinners of the world. On the contrary, since we know we're just like them, we identify with them, we love them, dare I say we pursue them, and we share Jesus with them. The religious would step back and go, man, get yourself together and then I'll be friends with you. That's not what someone believes the Gospel does because Jesus didn't say, get yourself clean and then I'll love you. Get yourself fixed and then maybe we can be friends. Jesus said, I know how screwed up and dirty you are and you want no one else to know, but I know it all and I love you. That's different. When we believe that Jesus came to earth and died in our place for our sins and raised to give us new life, you will be empowered to love Him and to love others, period. Christianity is not about measuring your worth according to your works, but finding your worth in His on the cross. A little warning as we end what I'm going to say. It's really hard to change from religion to the Gospel. It takes a miracle. It takes Jesus saying something and the reason why is because religion tastes good to us. That's what Jesus said. It was really interesting in Luke, in the same passage in Luke, the last thing Jesus says, which he doesn't, Matthew doesn't record in here, 
is that no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. So even though religion is a, a prison death sentence, it's actually a comfortable prison for many of us. If you've seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, love it. Okay, I was watching the other day, this way God works. I watched him like, oh, quote from my sermon, sweet, right? Main character, one of them named Red, played by Morgan Freeman, is making a statement as he's sitting and looking at the prison he's been in for 50 years. And reflecting on a guy who had been in there for the same amount of time and had left and had committed suicide because he couldn't handle being outside the prison and living real life. Here's what he says in looking at the walls. He says, at first you hate them. Then you get used to them. And then you begin to depend upon them. See, religion's like a prison. There's a sense of comfort in it, actually, which is weird. But after you've been in it a while, it's more scary to go outside of it than it is to stay in. But in truth, if you step back, and this is what I believe God shows us, there actually is no real life in there. There is a life. But there's no real freedom. There's no real hope. There's no real joy. It's a prison. Religion is attractive because I think it's much easier and more comfortable to follow rules than it is to foster a relationship that might require some interaction, that might require some real genuine sacrifice, that might require more than just checking a list, might require some conversations with your Lord, might require listening to Him a little, might require you doing something that you didn't want to do, but He's asked you to. That's relationship. Religion, I don't have to have any interaction with Him. With religion, I can kind of measure out the parts of my life and just kind of give what I like to God, but hold on to a lot. With relationship, though, he might say, he does say, I want it all. I want every aspect of you. I'll give you my 10%, or I'll give you my time. And he's like, no, that's, it's all mine. And you go, I'll do the religion thing. That's easy, but like when you're actually asking me to go on an adventure with you, follow you, like Matthew, right? Go follow me for three years. By the way, I'm going to die at the end, and so are you a few years after that. You ready? It's not what he says. But he does ask Matthew to drop everything and go. Peter and James and John and Andrew drop everything and go. Guys who were married, guys who had families, guys who had jobs. That's relationship, and that's a lot harder than religion. My guess is that all those guys were already religious. And Jesus asked them for something else. A totally new thing. Religion is a prison devoid of real life and it leads to death. And the Gospel frees us to live. But here's the key. It requires a death. The Gospel requires a death. And it required the death of Jesus Christ to make it possible and it requires to you to die with Him if you're going to believe. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great um, German pastor who stood up during World War II against the German uh, Nazi takeover of the church and died in a prison camp as a result of that, rightly said that when Christ calls a man, like He called Matthew and perhaps He's calling you, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. 
Dying with Jesus means you accept your badness and you trust in His goodness. Dying with Jesus means not that you just get a better life. You need and you get an entirely new one. And know that this, those old desires, those old dreams that you thought were really important to you, those old values, those, those needs that you thought you had of wealth or, or power or relationship, whatever, all of that has to die. And if it doesn't fully die, it will never fully live because nothing that doesn't fully die is ever resurrected. But when you die with Jesus, when you identify with Him and say, I believe that Jesus Christ died the death that I deserve, and I die with Him, you will live. And you will be given new meaning and new hope and new purpose and new joy that I think is best said in Galatians 2.20. That I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and delivered Himself up for me. That's a new way of living. And as we take communion, which we do every Sunday, I want to remind you of something. You've probably heard it said before. You know what? Make sure your heart's right before you come up. And I think it's well intended to say that. But dare I say this to you. Your heart will never be right. That's why we come to the table. The best we can, I think, come to is Jesus showing you your heart's messed up. Accept that. Believe that and trust that I've fixed it for you. As we come to the table, embrace the fact that you are bad. Embrace the fact that you don't have to be scared because He has lovingly come to save you. And embrace the fact that not only is there a death, which the wine or the juice and the bread represent, there's also a resurrection. So it's not just the death of the old, now what? It's the new life has come. We will sing two songs. For those who are new, we do communion a little bit differently. We sing two songs, and that's a time for you to reflect and then come up and get some elements for you and for your family. And it's to remind you that uh, for those who are married couples, those who are families, or those who have children, um, whether you're single, married, whatever, you have a responsibility to shepherd them. Your responsibility to take care of them. So we take it as a shared family, but there's also a, a little family that's taking place as well for you. So for you and for your family, come and get the elements. We'll take it together after two songs. And meanwhile, we'll sing to the glories and the joys of what Jesus Christ has done. Though we know we are bad, He is good, and that's where we'll put our faith. Let's pray.